This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, speaking for the country. In a country as enormous as the United States of America, it must be slightly overwhelming to be named U.S. Poet Laureate. Even if you pause all other projects and live on the road for the year or two that you are a Poet Laureate, traveling from state to state, you know you'll never see it all. How do you decide on where to go? And maybe you're not the traveling type to begin with. Maybe you just want to stay home and write. What do you make of the Poet Laureate position then? I'd like to play you a recording of a conversation between two former Poets Laureate, Natasha Trathaway, who traveled extensively throughout her two terms, and Charles Wright, who mostly stayed at home. The person guiding the conversation was not me, it was Rob Casper. And you have to do a sound check. Let's see. Okay. Okay. Rob Casper probably knows more about the Poet Laureateship than anyone. He not only heads the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress, and it's the Library of Congress that appoints the Poet Laureate, he also spends a lot of time in the car with these poets driving them to town halls, community centers, homeless shelters, schools, and every other place the Poet Laureate goes to speak. But before we get to his conversation with Natasha Trethaway and Charles Wright, I had some basic questions. For instance, how does the Library of Congress go about selecting the next Poet Laureate? Rob told me he starts by asking experts from around the country to send in their ideas. Scholars, critics, editors, nonprofit administrators, bookstore owners, and of course the previous Poets Laureate. And I got, I think, 94 responses from 29 different states. Wow. We had a whole nominating system. And sorry, you said 94, right? We had about 94 different responses. And is there any convergence or is it 94 different names? We had... I think 92 different names. (laughs) Rob and his colleagues at the Library of Congress then look at this long list of names and start circling who jumps out, looking at merit, impact, and, and here it gets tricky, fitness for the position. Can you help me understand? And you can totally say this should be off off record. record, Yeah, Yeah. but I'm just curious for myself, what would be something that would give you pause? Is it like when someone is a heavy drinker or something? Or like, what? (laughs) you know, what should I imagine? Uh, Someone who we feel or we have seen can handle the very public and sometimes challenging nature of the role. The Poet Laureate... Charles isn't really... With Charles, I'm talking about Charles Wright, who you'll hear in a minute, and who was not tremendously at ease with the public role of Poet Laureate. Well, let's put it this way. Okay. So our bosses at the Library of Congress are all the members of Congress and arguably the American people. Mm. And so we serve the most liberal to the most conservative members that make up that legislative body. So the Poet Laureate needs to be able to speak to every member of Congress and whoever that member represents. Sure, he needs to show how poetry, even when 
or maybe especially when it deals with political subjects, mm-hmm. deals with it in a way that speaks to our common humanity. Our common humanity. It can be hard to see sometimes when everything from birth to marriage and sickness to death has been turned into a gerrymandered battlefield. But if anything can shake up the stories we're stuck in, it's poetry. Hi there. So let's get to it. Hello. <laughs> Hello to both past poets laureate. Natasha Trethewey and Charles Wright. Do you have a sense of what it meant to have the laureateship happen at the time that it did for you? Well, I I must say that I did it at the last edge of things. And uh, it turned out to be so much better than I thought it was going to be, you know? I mean, even my childhood chums in Kingsport knew I was the poet laureate, which is the most important thing of all, as we all know. In fact, one of them, uh, one of them put out the word that our poet laureate is dead. And then someone got in touch with him and said, no, he's not. Not yet, anyhow. So I kind of liked that because it knew that they were aware that I was around, even though I'm not in town anymore. It is still something that people know about. Yeah. And um, the most significant moment for me was um, when I was at the library That's the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where every Monday and Tuesday afternoon, Natasha Trethewey would hold office hours for anyone who wanted to come in for a chat. A group of people came to see me, and they were um, Mennonites from Ohio who, well, in the 50s and the 60s, had sent missionaries down to Gulfport, Mississippi, my hometown, and they set up a camp there. Um, My mother went to this camp. And my grandmother used to let some of the missionaries stay at her house for weeks on a time. And they found out about me, and they said, that has to be Gwen's daughter. And, you know, my mother's been dead for 34 years Mm -hmm. now. Her mother, Gwendolyn Ann Turnbow, was murdered by her second husband, Natasha's stepfather, after years of domestic violence. Natasha was 19. And they brought me playbills of... uh, plays that my mother was in when she was at Bluffton University in Ohio, which is a Mennonite college, but uh-huh. she got to go to because of the work that they were doing in the community. And they brought her back to me. Oh, that's um, really And nice, it was yeah. lovely. The funny thing about the laureate position, and, and Charles, maybe you feel like this too, um, in recent years, because a lot of people have done things, there's this expectation that you're going to do things. Um, When I was first appointed, the newspaper reporters that I would speak to were immediately saying, so what's your project going to be? Mm -hmm. As if one is really sitting around thinking, oh, yeah, the day I get that call, I'm going to be prepared to do this project. That's not what happens. You're not sitting around thinking about that. It's interesting, too, Charles. I feel like I talked you into 
more <laughs> readings, more events than you might have otherwise taken on in that year that you had as Poet Laureate. And maybe you want to talk about what that experience was like for well, you. No, you didn't talk me into into more than <clears throat> than that. I mean, I, I remember when Mark Strand, my old friend, was a Poet Laureate number four. He had 37 readings in that year. Whew. And... Uh, that's a lot of traveling, you know. Mm-hmm. I did. I don't know what I had. I didn't know what five or ten. I know Natasha had many more, but I am loath to do them, as you well know. And so I just like standing as a beacon for for poetry instead of going out and talking to people, because I ain't very good at talking to people, you know. And particularly about poetry, is I'm not really sure what position poetry has in people's lives. I think it's very minuscule for the most part. And I don't know. I think they'd rather have a good burger than a good poem. <laughs> and and I, I don't really know what to say to that because uh, I don't much like burgers, but I do love poems, you know. And that poetry changed my life and gave me a life. And it's that iron thread that keeps on disappearing in front of me, but leads me to where I think I want to go. When I think back at the people who've really done stuff, I mean, actually beginning with Rita, probably, back in the day, and then uh, Robert Pinsky and Billy Collins, you and Tracy K. Smith and, and others, of course, along the way. It makes me feel as though I didn't do enough. So I don't, I think it's very important to each individual what poetry does. Mm-hmm. But I'm not uh, much of an evangelist about poetry. Uh, it's like It's like grace, you have to wait to be called. You can't go out and get it, you know? It came to me in the way that I want it to come to other people, unannounced and uh, with all his clothes off, you know. I was over in Italy, in the army stationed in Verona, Italy, and I had a friend there named Harold Schimmel, who was in the outfit with me, who had written poems and was a poet, you know, and I, I didn't know anything. I'd never written a poem in my life. And he said, you should read this when you go out to Lake Garter to Sirmione. And he gave me this book, you know, The Selected Poems of Ezra Pound. I started reading it, and I was really entered and picked clean, you know, I really was. And uh, that was it, you know. And there was no kind of looking back after that. What hast thou, my soul, with paradise? Will we not rather, when our freedom's won, get us to some clear place wherein the sun lets drift in on us through the olive leaves and liquid glory? If at Sirmio, my soul, I meet thee, when this life's outrun, Will we not find some headland consecrated by airy apostles of terrene delight? Will not our cult be founded on the waves, clear sapphire, cobalt, cyanine, 
on triune azures, the impalpable mirrors unstill of the eternal change? That's how Ezra Pound begins his poem that converted Charles Wright to the cause, Blandula Tenela Vagula. Well, maybe, Natasha, you could talk about where poetry lives and how that project celebrated the ways in which people found poetry valuable in whatever they were dealing with. Yeah, there were so many ways that we saw in that year. Um, One of my favorites was when we went to the Memory Center in New York, where Gary Glazner, the poet there, was using poetry to help Alzheimer's patients live in the moment. And these are people who you would see them one moment and they seemed not to be particularly present. And it was sad. It reminded me of my great aunt Sugar when she was, the 10 years that she lived with Alzheimer's, um, silent, um, sometimes in a corner. And when they began to recite poems, poems that they remembered from childhood, it's as if part of that childhood came back with them, mm-hmm. and they were animated. And it was lovely to see that somehow those cadences stayed with them, stayed in the body, um, and could bring the mind back to memory because it was in the body in that way. I also liked when we went to um, Harvard Medical School and Raphael Campo, the poet who's also a physician and a professor of medicine there, was using poetry with the interns, getting them to both read it and write it, because he felt that poetry, because of what it can do for empathy, made the young doctors more empathetic and more able to treat the whole patient. Mm -hmm. That would be a good thing to do, yes. Yeah. Good for him. Mm -hmm. Well, you notice that I haven't, spoken much about the laureateship because I was the I was the stealth laureate you know nobody knew I came and nobody knew I left that's not true that's true and of course that's because I made it that way just because uh, it's not the sort of thing that I am good at even capable of I guess which is surprising because it's poetry has brought so much joy to me and when I read a poem it just, I say, God, yeah, well, that's it. And uh, I guess what I'm talking about is the beauty of certain images and the way that they can get inside you and sort of explode into a way of recognition that you might not have had before. i never forget when I read that poem called Afternoons by Larkin the first time and talking about the young mothers with their children. Afternoons by Philip Larkin. They've grown up and they have kids and they're not young anymore. Summer is fading. The leaves fall in ones and twos from trees bordering the new recreation ground. In the hollows of afternoons, young mothers assemble at swing and sand pit, setting free their children. Behind them, at intervals, stand husbands in skilled trades, an estate full of washing, and the albums lettered our wedding, lying near the television. Before them, the wind is ruining their courting places that are still courting places 
but the lovers are all in school. And their children, so intent on finding more unripe acorns, expect to be taken home. Their beauty has thickened. Something is pushing them to the side of their own lives. Something is pushing them to the side of their own lives. God, I wish I'd said that. I mean, I just think that that's just so perfect an example of what happens to people as, as we age. You know, they just get pushed to the side of their own lives, where they were going or where they thought they were going. They probably weren't going in the first place. It's tough for young mothers, you know. Gee whiz. Anyhow. Well, Charles, I listening to you right now, I, I have to disagree with you about whether or not you're any good <laughs> at being an evangelist for poetry. Yeah. Because in the year that I was doing Where Poetry Lives, one of the other places that I went that meant a lot to me was this school in Detroit, um, the Inside Out Literary Arts Program. And I was sitting at a table like this with some middle school kids, and I asked the question to them, what would you do if you had my job, if you had to somehow uh, proselytize for poetry? And this young girl looked at me and she said, well, first... I would read them a poem because if they don't like poetry, they clearly don't know what it is. Yeah, and they, they'll never like it if they don't know what it is. You know? That's exactly what you do. You just yeah. read a poem. Mm -hmm. That's the best reason for anyone mm -hmm. who doesn't know about this mm -hmm. to find out as soon as they can. We were talking about, you know, how one comes to poetry, and we get there different ways. Yeah. Um, and I think that my path to poetry was through pain. Um, indeed, I, yeah. I've lived in a state of bereavement my entire adult well, life. I understand that, yeah. And so, um, sitting in a college classroom, and um, after uh, my mother's death, and then reading Auden's Musée de Beaux-Arts yeah. for the first time and feeling like, okay, bring it on mm -hmm. after reading those first lines, you know, about suffering, they were never wrong. I'm like, what are you going to tell me about suffering? Yeah. Mm. And then it did. Well, yeah. yeah, well, it made you know what you knew about suffering. Yeah. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree.
in Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. Well, I've always wondered how I got into poetry. I had a happy childhood. I didn't want for anything except a better head and a, a better golf swing. Uh, and everybody always says, you know, you get hurt. Even Auden said that about Yeats, you know, Wild Iron, hurt you into poetry. Um, I never got hurt into poetry. That's why I always am kind of skeptical of whatever I do because I, I don't know, I had a blessed childhood, so. Well, I think, um, I don't know that I would be either the person or the poet that I am without the intense love that I had as a child. So in that way, I can't even think of my difficult childhood as an unhappy one. Yeah. But I also think, you know, sometimes I'm talking to students and there's this sense among them that if they haven't suffered, if they haven't had an unhappy childhood, that they will have nothing to write about, that they can't be poets. And so when you say something like you're a little skeptical about yourself, um, there must be some other thing. Maybe it's a deep humane intelligence empathy, Mm -hmm. the idea to regard the suffering of others and feel deeply moved by it, that you don't have to have actually suffered in the same way. And I would not wish suffering on anyone to make them a poet. Well, if they're lucky, they can all do what I did, have their lives changed by poetry. And that's what happened to me. That we could have such different life experience, Mm -hmm. but that both of us would say that poetry saved our lives. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, I have no shame in saying that. But maybe the point is just that it doesn't matter how you come to it. Just that you come to it. That you can come to it at all. But everything you've said is a testimonial. It's like standing up in church and just saying, this happened to me. Natasha Trethaway wrote six poetry collections, including her latest book called Monument, in which she connects her own history as the daughter of a black mother and a white father when such a marriage was still illegal, to U.S. history at large. Charles Wright has written almost 30 books of poetry that, as one critic put it, search for transcendence in the landscape of the everyday. You can find more of their work on the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.